is an awesome God. Uh, find, if you will, Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. And first let me say, Happy Father's Day. I know Father's Day can often be um, sometimes a difficult holiday for some. Maybe uh, your dad is not with you. He's passed, or maybe you've never known uh, your father. But today is a day, whether it's the physical father in your life or just a man who has been a father figure to you, to call him, tell him how much you care about him, and maybe buy him some wings. (laughs) That's, I know... If I can get an amen from the men in the room, what you want for this Father's Day is some good food and a nap. Amen? Amen? Right? And so there's a way I would encourage you to bless whoever uh, that man is in your life this Sunday. We've been journeying through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves toward the end of the life of Jacob. And we're actually only a few weeks left till we take a break from Genesis for a while, and then we'll pick up. Uh, at at a future point in the life of Jacob's son, Joseph. But in the meantime, let's look at Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in the front And then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Then he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I see my Lord in Seir." So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from his sons of of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. Therefore he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of God. Today's passage brings us face to face with the incredibly difficult topic of forgiveness. And ironically, nothing gets people more upset than when you begin to speak to them on the topic of forgiveness. God's word isn't primarily concerned with our own comforts and preferences, but rather the Bible wants to read us as we read it and to unlock for us the path and the way of joy and life. It, it, the Bible wants to crack us open and expose us before God and his truth in order that we might be conformed to it. And so the Bible isn't shy in confronting us about the poison of bitterness and unforgiveness. Because see, many of you, the source of your unhappiness is your own unforgiveness. Some, if not most of us, continue to walk around with some sort of anger or shame and regret that we simply will not let go. Whether it's something that one of your parents did or didn't do, whether it's the betrayal of a friend or a family member, the way those people hurt you, whatever it is, friends, hear me, hanging on to it will only destroy your soul. Yet, for unforgiveness allows things behind you to remain before you and to ultimately define you. By hanging on to things in unforgiveness, things that you should be past become your present and ultimately end up defining your future. If you want those who hurt you to continue to have power and influence over you, then live in forgiveness, live in unforgiveness. If you want them to have power over you, live in unforgiveness. And friends, it's so funny. God's people, those who have been forgiven by God of our great offenses, are often the ones who struggle to forgive the most. Just consider what's before us here in Genesis 33. Recall where we've been. Jacob and Esau are brothers. And Jacob, along with his mother, schemed his brother Esau out of his birthright as the firstborn and the blessing of Isaac, their father. And in this culture, being the older brother brought certain privileges, and all of those privileges were taken from Esau by Jacob. Jacob hasn't been home for decades. He's encountered God He has served as a slave to Laban. He got married to two women at once. (laughs) And he's had 11 sons and, and, and at least one daughter, we're told. And the last we heard from Esau, here's what we were told back in Genesis chapter 27. Here's what we were told. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called to Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. 
not good news, right? And Esau and Jacob are about to meet for the first time since this happened, and the whole episode is a surprising illustration of human forgiveness, true but imperfect forgiveness. As we dive into the text, you'll see with your notes there are five aspects of forgiveness that we see in this text. First, let's consider the foundation of forgiveness, which is recognition. The foundation of all forgiveness is recognition. Look at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and look, behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. I think we can see by Jacob's actions leading up to this, and even right here, that he realizes that he did something wrong to Esau. He's been sending, we saw last week, these gifts with messengers ahead, just trying to sort of schmooze Esau over. He knows he's about to encounter some trouble. And Jacob told his messengers to tell Esau that his servant, Jacob, was coming rather than his brother, Jacob, was coming. This might not seem like a big deal, but Jacob is carefully trying to downplay his own potential threat and to appear to Esau to be humbled and lowly. He lifts up his eyes, which is a phrase that we see throughout Genesis, and now Esau is coming, and there are 400 men with him. And what, what Jacob does next, it's, it's unclear exactly why he is responding this way. So he places his family out there, and it's possible that he's placing them in order of prominence to greet Esau because Esau had a nation with him, and that this was sort of a posture of humility and weakness. But friends, it's also possible, knowing Jacob, he's just trying to save his own tail right? He could be appearing to be humble and lowly and greet him, but he puts his family out in front of him, the women and the children, as this potential threat is coming, and he puts them out there. And notice the order. There's some interesting foreshadowing here. The servants, wives, and children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph a clear favorite, if you know what comes later in Genesis, last and closest to Jacob. Jacob has, has recognized at least that what he's done is going to bring consequences to him. He tries to appease Esau with gifts. He's trying to appear as harmless as possible. And he may even have been willing to put his family in danger to save his own skin. Come on, Jacob. You know, what are we doing here but verse 3 tells us eventually Jacob comes forward. He bows seven times to the ground, which is this act of incredible respect. And Jacob had likely heard at this point the blessing of his father Isaac that he stole echoing over him. Consider what Isaac said to Jacob back in chapter 27. This was the blessing that he stole from Esau. Genesis 27, 29 let people serve you and the nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. 
Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob is now bowing down almost as if he's trying to give back the birthright and the blessing he stole from Esau. He's like, have you ever spilled something on the floor? And you know there's no way you can just sort of clean and put this back in the cup the way it was supposed to be. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to just pick all the pieces back up and put it back in there. And he can't ultimately reverse what he did. It's clear that Jacob recognizes in one sense that he did wrong, but it's unclear what exactly his motive was. Was his motive fear of what Esau would do and he wants to avoid it? Is it possible that Jacob's had a change of heart and attitude, though he was still certainly imperfect? I think Jacob knew he'd stolen from Esau and he sought his forgiveness through humility and recognition. The foundation, the beginning of all forgiveness is recognition that we have done wrong. And we need to take this from Jacob to you because there are some of us who need to forgive, but the person we need to forgive has never fully recognized their actions toward us. And hear me, it is truly one of the hardest things to forgive someone who doesn't seem to think that they did wrong. But as we'll see, forgiveness is not only possible for the child of God, it is commanded. Jesus is the Savior, the healer, and the forgiver of people who never fully recognize how deeply flawed we are. Imagine if God forgave us as we forgave others. We can get close, but there will always be something in us that keeps us from seeing ourselves exactly as we are, and yet God has loved us and forgiven us, and friends, he calls us to do the same to others. We also need to move from Jacob to those who are needing to seek someone else's forgiveness. You know who you are, and you know what you've done, and what happened, and hear this, You can never begin to experience true forgiveness until you recognize that you have done wrong. This is always hard. And in this day and age, I think it's even harder. Folks really struggle to admit that they did wrong. We're very prideful and don't don't like telling folks about our faults. We don't want to admit what the Bible ultimately says about us, that we're rebels against God and we're selfish toward one another. We also try to be very vague about our sins in order to to sort of save face and save our reputations. We've seen this before. Think about the politicians. You maybe have one in your head. After committing adultery or some other scandal, they call what they did a lapse in judgment or a mistake or a moral failing, but they never truly call it what it is. Adultery, stealing, sin against God. And finally, I think we often try to soften our own ownership when we talk about our sins in light of other people's sins. I've seen this all the time in the church. We, we hurt somebody, we do this, and then you know what we do? We go, well, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So, And that's just supposed to somehow do away with everything that was said and done before. Hear me, the doctrine of sin is not an excuse for you to live in sin. Or we seek to recognize our sin, friends, by pointing out the sin of others. We say things like, 
I'm sorry I lashed out, but my boss was really mean to me today. Or, I'm sorry I did this, my parents caused me to do this. I'm sorry I sought revenge, but you did it first. Friends, if you want to seek true forgiveness, whether it be from God or from others, you must seek ownership in your own sin. You must confess your own sin, and you must be specific without excuse, without comparison, and without deflection. We must recognize, recognition is the foundation of forgiveness. And we shouldn't simply confess it, friends, to avoid consequence, but rather we should consider the goal of forgiveness, which is what we see next in the text, that the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. Reconciliation, not just to be sorry because we got caught or we don't want the consequences, but because our goal should be reconciliation to one another. Look what happens to Jacob, and what happens is incredible and unexpected. Verse 4, he's bowing down to the ground, and Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. Wow. Imagine the scene. Esau runs out from the 400 men. He runs all the way to Jacob. He gives him this big old bear hug. He kisses him, and they're crying. And and you know this, when a bunch of men get together and cry, something powerful has just occurred. Think of the same sort of drama and language here we see in the parable of the prodigal son, where the father ran to meet the son as he returned home. Esau... And Jacob, the deceiver, and the one he deceived, have finally been reconciled. And look at verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. The family sort of gathers around, and it's almost as if the camera pans around to each of the children. And Esau speaks, and notice he says, my brother... And we find in verse 11 that Jacob has found favor, grace, and acceptance. He's no longer an enemy, but a brother. No longer at war, but at peace. And this is the goal of forgiveness. To bring harmony into turbulence, peace into the mess. Not simply to get out of trouble, but to get his brother back. And what a picture. Esau, think about it. Esau is this large, hairy guy who's been the victim of Jacob's deceit. And he's hugging his much smaller brother, Jacob, who's actually named for how he treated Esau. Jacob was worried about Esau's strength, and now he's found in his embrace. He expected a cold encounter, but he got a warm welcome. What a display of forgiveness, and the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. The goal must always be peace. Consider this, if you want to know what this looks like, the Apostle Paul really 
puts feet on it in what he wrote to the Romans. This is a perfect illustration of what reconciliation looks like on the ground. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Look at this. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, reconciliation means seeking to live in harmony. It means not repaying evil or seeking vengeance, but doing good to those who hurt you. Notice verse 18 should be a life verse for many of us. It says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with others. I love that because, friends, there are going to be times you're not going to be able to after everything you've done. Sometimes that doesn't happen, but he says, give everything for it. Reconciliation takes work. It means not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. It means not to seek vengeance on your enemy, but to feed him and to give water to him if he needs it. And it says, by doing so, you're actually heaping hot coals on his head. I love that. I love that. It says, kill him with kindness. Kill them with kindness. You can't be in harmony and still wish to do harm to someone. You can't still be, you can't be in harmony with them and still wish harm on the one who hurt you. And friends, I know this is countercultural. Because in our day, somebody hurts us, the first thing we want to do is go get on Facebook and tell the whole world about it. Let them know how badly they treated us. We're going to unfriend them and block them. That'll show them, right? And before, and, and many of us want to mock in our culture this idea of forgiving someone who's hurt us. But before we mock this sort of radical forgiveness, consider the Son of God. Consider Jesus himself, who though he could have called down a legion of angels, said with his final breath as they crucified him there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hear this, Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he didn't do first. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything he didn't do first. The foundation of forgiveness is recognition. The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation, peace between the offender and the offended. But how do we do this? What is the means of forgiveness? The way we seek it? Well, the means of forgiveness is repentance. Repentance, recognition, reconciliation, and now repentance. Look at verse 10 and 11. Look at this. Jacob said, after Esau has refused his gifts, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, 
and he took it. So Jacob had just got done wrestling with God in chapter 32. He wrestled with an angel and prevailed. And so now Jacob has faced Esau and lived. And Jacob urges him to take his gift, which we saw in the last chapter, was over 500 animals of incredible value. And this opens up something I think many of us have never been told, because Jacob's presents are an act of repentance. See, many of us have it wrong when we think repentance is simply apologizing. No. Get that out of your head. Repentance is not simply apologizing. Repentance is seeking to return and restore what was lost. Repentance is turning the other way and seeking to return and restore what was lost. Notice, Jacob is trying to bless him after stealing his blessing. And he's offering him honor due the firstborn, though he stole the birthright. Jacob was returning to the best of his ability what he stole. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 describes repentance, at least in part, as restitution. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See this. It doesn't simply say repentance is, well, I'm sorry. It doesn't simply say that repentance is stopping something, but rather it's, it's changing how you used to be for new attitudes and new habits. It's putting off stealing, in the case of the Ephesians, and adding in working and giving. And Jacob is illustrating this change in himself by seeking to pay back restitution, seeking to pay back to the best of his ability what he directly stole from the brother he wronged. And friends, forgiveness is impossible without repentance. You will never have forgiveness with God or forgiveness with one another if you're unwilling to repent to one another. But friends, we must realize that even our best attempts at repentance are flawed. (laughs) We're imperfect people, aren't we? None of us have ever probably had a perfect repentance a day in our life, and even our best attempts at reconciliation are flawed and imperfect because we're human. And it certainly was with Jacob and Esau. Consider fourth, as the story progresses, to show us that the reality of forgiveness is reluctance. That the reality of forgiveness is that there is often much reluctance still there. Notice what happens, verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go on ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to see her. Here we get a blunt reality about forgiveness. It's often imperfect, and restored relationships still contain much reluctance. See this, Esau asked Jacob, they've forgiven, they've been reconciled, they've made up, and he says, hey, you want to come over? And Jacob 
says no, and he uses his kids and his animals as an excuse. Have you ever, nobody's here ever done that, have they? Well, the kids are hungry, the animals, I I, got to get back home, right? And one of the reasons, I think this is just, this is an excuse on Jacob's part. Think about it. He just sent his wife and kids right into harm's way just a moment before, and now he's worried about how frail they might be. This is an excuse on Jacob's part, right? He just didn't want to go over to Esau's house. And Esau also had his doubts. Notice, he says, Jacob, let me leave some of my servants with you. And, and I think Jacob wanted, I think Esau wanted to keep an eye on Jacob. I think he wanted to keep an eye on him. And yet they both end up departing their own way, but in peace. See, while there is forgiveness and restoration, all of it will generally always be imperfect. Esau and Jacob may have forgiven each other, but they didn't yet trust each other. And here's the lesson for you. Just because you forgive them doesn't mean you have to let that person into your life in the exact same way. Friends, it doesn't mean your family or friend dynamic has to look the same. Divine forgiveness and human forgiveness are very different in many ways. In fact, when two people reconcile, they often recreate the relationship. Forgiveness gives birth to something new, and if done right, something better. And sometimes, friends, the less time together can be a better thing. Jacob and Esau will always be brothers. They will always have conflict. But from this moment, they are brought to peace and reconciled into a recreated relationship. And friends, forgiveness can do that for you too. Because, hear me, Jesus calls you to love those who offended you. He doesn't necessarily call you to like them. There's some pastoral advice for you. You are called to love your enemy, but it doesn't say you've got to always have them over for the barbecue. So hear this. On this Father's Day, you may have someone in your family or a friend that you need to forgive. And you need to do it for the sake of love, for the goal of peace, for a reconciled and recreated relationship. But friends, it's okay to have some reluctance, even if this is brand new. And ultimately, for us as Christians, we can pursue this sort of forgiveness because we have experienced the fifth and final point, the truest forgiveness, which is redemption through Jesus Christ. The truest forgiveness is redemption through Jesus Christ. Let's see how the chapter ends for Jacob, and then we'll bring it home to us. Look at this, verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booth or tent. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces of he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he'd pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So Esau heads back to Edom, and Jacob continues on his way back home. They're on separate road trips, separate directions, and there's a lot packed in these final verses here. First, 
Moses is clearly trying to contrast for us the response of Jacob and the silence of Esau. Jacob worships and builds an altar. We don't hear anything like that from Esau. I think that's kind of helping us note their spiritual state a little bit. We also see that the nation of Israel here, who's going to come through Jacob, they camped in the wilderness in tents and booths. And here Jacob is camping in the wilderness in tents and booths. And we also see that the promise of Abraham has come into fulfillment in his life. There was a promise of offspring. He's been given 11 sons. That's quite a bit of offspring, isn't it? He's been giving blessing. God has preserved his life through the whole episode with Laban and Esau. And he was promised land. And now he's purchased. He owns land in the land of Canaan that God promised to give to him. And I believe that Jacob recognized all of this favor upon him, and that's why he erected this altar named El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And there he worships. And we see Jacob for the first time in Genesis worshiping the Lord, just as Abraham and Isaac had done. He made their God his God. And this is such an incredible moment for him because Jacob comes to see that the Lord's grace, blessing, and forgiveness were all over his life. That the Lord has redeemed Jacob, purchased and saved him out of slavery to Laban and the dangers of Esau. Jacob was purchasing land because God had purchased him. And God has forgiven Jacob, the deceiver, and he's given him a new name with a new relationship. So now Jacob seeks to recognize his sin toward Esau and to seek repentance and reconciliation. And this text, friends, should move from Jacob to you because this text is a call to you to forgive those who have hurt you or to seek to reconcile with someone you have hurt. And now some will stop here and go, but but Matt, I can't forgive them. You don't know what they've done or how many times they did it. But friends, I would call you to consider that forgiveness isn't my idea. It's God's idea. This is God's idea. One day, Peter came to Jesus, and you never want to be on the side Peter's on in an argument. You never do when you're in the Gospels, because Peter came to the Lord, and he says, How often do I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times. In other words, he says, Do I really have to forgive them? And Jesus responds by saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, he isn't saying that after they wrong you for the 78th time, you pack up and go, you give up on them. No, seven's a number of perfection. And so to forgive seven times 70 is to forgive exhaustively, completely, and absolutely. And then Jesus tells a parable. I love this. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of them brought him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, 
he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the punchline. Every parable has a punchline, a point. Here it is. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, God, the king of the universe, has forgiven the absolute worst in you. And he did it through paying the restitution with the life of his own son. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, should die for me? And this gospel forgiveness is meant to empower you to forgive the worst in others. Because in Jesus Christ, the son of God and righteous servant, he died for our sins For crimes he did not commit, and he rose again on the third day, so that through repentance and faith in him, we die to our sin and ourself, and we're raised to newness of life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we're now able to pursue forgiveness and give forgiveness to others. Paul uses the same logic in Colossians chapter 3. Look what he says here. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, we're able to pursue reconciliation with others and to be reconciled with others because Jesus has come and forgiven us. I know it's cliche, but it is true that forgiven people forgive people why can't we if god has forgiven the inexcusable in us why can't we forgive the inexcusable in others i've left a blank at the bottom of your notes it's a question to ponder who do i need to reconcile with and there and and there's a blank there i would encourage you to write in a name there with i need to reconcile with and i would encourage you to take it before the lord And to take it to whoever they are, to run to them, to embrace them, to forgive them. Or if you're on the other end of the equation, to go to them, to recognize your wrong and to seek to make it right in whatever way you can. And today, there's likely someone here who needs to experience forgiveness of your sin. And Jesus stands ready to save any and all who would come to him today. The Apostle Paul was a murderer, a prideful Pharisee. And yet, here's what he could declare in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. He could say this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, God can forgive your sins through Jesus Christ and in you display his perfect patience as an example to the world. But you must come before him with recognition, saying, God, I am a sinner. And to be specific in the ways that you have sinned before him, we'll never catch them all before him, but we we know what we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. To confess And to repent, to turn away and go, Lord, help me to do this differently. And to turn away and to trust in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. To get up out of the chair that you're in of selfishness and sin. And to set down into the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf. If you need to do that today, you can do that right where you are through praying to God through talking to me or, 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 or meeting with one of us here. We would love to do that. But others of us simply need to ponder. Have we displayed to others the forgiveness we've received? Who do you need to reconcile with today? And whatever you need to do, I would encourage you today to do business with God. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm thankful that you do forgive sinners, (laughs) that you're a God who is merciful and gracious, you're just and and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. I do ask that you would, if there's anybody here within the sound of my voice who needs to have their sins before you forgiven, that you would awaken them to their need, they would confess before you, their sin, but also confess that you're a greater Savior, that you saved those who were first and foremost, the greatest of all sinners. And you do it in order to display your perfect mercy and patience in them. But Lord, I also pray that in this room, there are people who need to let it go. Whatever it is, they need to let go of what's hurt them. They need to let go of bitterness in their heart and their life. And I pray they would do that even now, that they would not leave here today without reconciling with the person that they came with, that they know they've had a beef with for a long time, or or not without sending that text to that person to, to make up and to reconcile. And Lord, it may mean reluctance and a new and a different relationship, but it will be for the good of their soul and for your glory. I ask that you would make us forgiven people who forgive people. And I ask that you would be glorified through all that we do together. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just stay in that place of, of prayer time with the Lord. And we'll just sing this chorus a few times, remembering how awesome our Father is, how forgiving he is. And to remember that we are ambassadors, we are a kingdom of priests, to be vessels of his forgiveness. And it's hard as humans, it's hard, but but in Christ we can do all things, can't we? So let's let's sing this chorus a few times, just raising our, our praise to our Father. Our God is an awesome God, he reigns. 
before we close with our benediction first just a reminder there are baskets here at this door and in the back uh, we're going to be keeping those around for our uh, offering going forward uh, even even now that it seems like covid has sort of moved past us that's still sticking around and then if you're new with us visiting been visiting for a while and would love to connect i'd encourage you to meet out at the welcome uh, table out there there's a get connected card i encourage you to fill that out leave us with us. Even if you just need to talk or want to connect, please fill it out. We'd love to know to pray for your family and follow up with you in the days ahead. We close with a benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.